You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. So now we're in Luke chapter 23, verse 25. And Lord, as we look at the day that you showed us why you even came into this world by laying down your life on the cross, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. We pray that the gospel would go forth with power in this place and that it would accomplish the work. I'm so unworthy to be the man to bring this message today, Lord. While it's a a weighty subject, the crucifixion, there's such joy in proclaiming it because it brings freedom from our sin, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you're not on the cross anymore, but you're alive from the dead, conquering death. So just speak to us by your spirit and by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, way back in Luke's gospel, months before the Last Supper took place, months before Jesus' crucifixion, it says that Jesus set his gaze toward Jerusalem with a purpose. And that purpose was to give his life as a ransom for the sins of the world. I've been looking forward and yet dreading teaching this chapter because I I know the weightiness of it. And yet I love the joy that comes from us being set free from our sins by the blood that was shed there at Calvary. And as we look at the crucifixion, we remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the pain and the shame of the cross. And what was the joy that was set before him? What could possibly be joyful about an execution? The joy that was set before him was you. The joy that was set before him was being with you for eternity. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. As we think of the word excruciate, you can think of probably the one pain in your life that you would say, yeah, that was excruciating. In our English language, it means to cause great agony or torment. It's from a Latin word, ex, meaning out of, and cruciate, The cross. And so the word excruciate means from the cross. And as we look at the excruciating, dark, and brutal manner by which the Lord of glory died, we're reminded of the darkness and the severity and the brutality of our sin, of our depravity, and how desperately we need a Savior. For the last two weeks, we've looked at the last night of Jesus, you know, beginning at Passover and the upper room. And it's reasonable to assume that Jesus was in good health prior to being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. Before his crucifixion, however, he was forced to walk three and three quarter miles on a sleepless night through which he went through six trials was mocked, ridiculed, beaten, abandoned by friends. We remember studying the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went through severe anguish of soul and stress by which he sweated out 
great drops of blood, a medical condition known as hematidrosis. And so at the beginning of this night, Jesus was in good health. But by the end of this day, as we'll study today, uh, he'll breathe his last breath and yield up his spirit. And so in verse 25, the last phrase is, Pilate delivered Jesus over to their will or to the will of the crowd. Three times as we've studied the trials of Jesus, Pilate declared three separate times, I find no fault in this man. He's done nothing wrong. Then later, after Jesus came back from Herod, I find no fault in this man. He's done nothing wrong. And then later, after the scourging, I find no fault in this man. He's done nothing wrong. And yet Pilate wavered in his decision for Jesus because he wanted to gratify the crowd. He didn't make a solid, firm stand for Jesus there on the judgment seat and say, he's innocent, you go home, he's being set free, he's an innocent man. But rather he wavered because of wanting to please man. History tells us kind of a sad story that later on in Pilate's life, he went back to Sicily, to the cliffs of Sicily, and by the end of his life, he'll have hung himself by the cliffs of Sicily. But as he was there in Sicily, a man came up to him as Christianity was on the rise. And as Acts tells us, these Christians are turning the world upside down. It's really right side up. But these little Christs running around, what's the deal with these guys? A man went to Pontius Pilate and said, what was the deal with that Jesus man? Tell me about that day. And Pontius Pilate could not remember a Jesus, could not remember a Jesus. As dramatic and eventful as this day was, there's a lesson there in Pilate's life that if we don't seize the day and give our lives completely over to Jesus, that our hearts become hard and eventually we'll never have known Jesus. We'll never have even remembered an encounter with Jesus. And finally, we'll know that Jesus will say to us, away from me, I never knew you. And in Matthew chapter 27, Pilate is wavering and he sees that he can't Uh, prevail against this crowd, but that a riot was growing. And so he took a bowl of water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and says, I find no fault in this man. I'm washing my hands of this. I'm innocent of the blood of this just person you see to his death. And all the people screamed out his blood be on us, on our head and on our children. And so Pilate released Barabbas, a rebel, a rebel and a murderer, and took Jesus and scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. So he scourged Jesus. He delivered Jesus over to their will. When we look at the scourging of Jesus, we look at the flagrum, the large post that Jesus was taken to in a courtyard and strapped around with his arms tightening the skin on his back. Then a professional Roman torturer would use a whip known as the cat of nine tails, which had nine leather straps and attached to the end of each strap was bone and glass and rock. 
And as the soldier would swing the whip around, it wasn't the lash on the back that would do most of the damage, but it was the wrapping around of the whip as it attached to the victim, our Jesus's body. And as the soldier would pull back, he would pull back skin and chunks of flesh, exposing vital organs. Jewish law, Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us that 39 lashes were to be used. 40 was maximum causing death, but 39 was merciful to the point of death or one of death. Victims were to be given one free blow not given. Even today, you can look at recent examples of scourgings without the bone and the glass and those things attached to a whip and extreme blood loss occurs from the beating, weakening the victim to where they will pass out almost every time, if not dying by the 40th lash. Mark chapter 15 gives us an account of what happened as Jesus was scourged that The soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called the Praetorium, which was literally the locker room for the Roman soldiers. And they gathered together a whole garrison of 15 soldiers. Maybe it's the same 15 that would guard the tomb uh, by that later on that evening. It says that they clothed Jesus in purple and put a crown of thorns on his head. And then they began to mock salute him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, bowing the knee and pretending to worship him. They mocked him more, took the purple robe off of him, and then put his own clothes back on him, leading him out to be crucified. And so Jesus was taken into this praetorian, or the Roman locker room, attached to the Antonia Fortress. In that locker room, you can go there today, And the original floor is there from when Jesus was beaten and mocked there. I have pictures of carvings on these stones of games that the soldiers would play, tossing dice and trying to get things within certain circles. And it was there that they played what was called the games of the kings. Very fitting for when they played the game with the king here, beating him, mocking him, pretending that he was some kind of false king when really he's the real king. We read that uh, they put this color of royalty on him. They put this crown of thorns on him. Thorns are so common in Israel, about two inches in length is each barb of a thorn. Some people say that it wasn't our traditional crown of thorns that we see, but that perhaps it was a full cap of thorns that was woven. And the soldiers, it says they beat the crown with the rod digging it into his head, a very vascular part of the body, causing even more blood loss. And they dressed him in this purple robe. We see some notes from the scarlet robe, believe it or not, and from these crown of thorns that in Genesis we're told that because of our sin, the ground will not just yield beautiful flowers and grass, but will yield what? Thorns. Thorns and briars. It's cursed. The ground is cursed because of our sin. Interesting that the curse was laid upon Jesus. We're also told in Isaiah, come and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, behold, I'll make you as white as snow. 
picture of our sin being the color of scarlet and Jesus was covered in scarlet as he took upon the sins of the world upon himself. The curse of the world was taken upon Jesus there at the cross. You know, they began to salute him. Hail King of the Jews. Long life to the King of the Jews when they knew as well as he did that that life was about to be ended. The Old Testament prophets prophesied of the severity of the bleeding. You know, Luke chapter 22, you know, we already read it, but when he was with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders blindfolded him and struck him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy, which one of us hit you? And we're reminded back to Isaiah chapter 50, these Old Testament prophets, you know, where he said, you know, I gave my back to those who struck me. I willingly put my arms around the the post. I willingly gave my back to the whipping. I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. The gospel accounts don't tell us of the plucking of the beard, but the oh-so-fulfilled Old Testament passages tell us his beard was plucked out. And he did not hide his face from the shame and from the spitting. Isaiah 52, 14 says, Just as there were many that were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form matted beyond human likeness. In other words, Jesus, through the beatings and the scourgings and the mockings, looked like no man had ever looked before through torture. His face was matted beyond any human appearance that any human had ever gone through before. Revelation tells us he looks like a lamb that was slain even in eternity. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was pierced for our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin, our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And listen to this. By his wounds, we are healed. Do you know that sin in your life has caused thorns in your life? Your life is ruined by your sin. Your family's lives are ruined by your sin. Your job, your career, your hopes, ruined by your sin. Every single one of us, myself included, we are so depraved. There's no hope but by the shedding of blood. The Old Testament tells us it's only by the shedding of blood that there's forgiveness of sins. And it was by his wounds, those precious drops of blood that were shed, not just on the cross, but through the whippings and through the beatings that heal us. You know, we're promised in Genesis that God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. The locusts have just destroyed your life. Sin has destroyed who you are. Your body is destroyed by your sin, whether that be through drugs or alcohol or overeating or staying up too late, watching your idol box. You know, our bodies are destroyed because of our sin on so many levels, even just naturally the curse of sin through cancer and aging. But God is able to heal. God is able to restore He's able to save John chapter 19, verse five. It's a longer passage. So if you want to turn there, I'm, I won't discourage you. John chapter 19, verse five says that Jesus came out from the beating wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, or excuse me, Pilate said to them, to the crowd, behold the man. And the literal translation is behold. This is a man. 
I know you can't tell right now because we just beat him up and ripped his flesh off his bones. You can see vital organs. You see caked on blood. You see thorns and a crown. He looks some sort, like some sort of nightmarish dream. This is a man. Behold him. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They didn't sympathize. What have we done? This is a person. We're sorry. Oh man. Okay. That's you. You paid for all the annoying things you did to us, Jesus. But no, instead of being sympathetic and compassionate, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. We want to see something excruciating happen to this man. Pilate said to him, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. And the Jews said, well, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard that, he was more afraid. And he went into the praetorium, back into the locker room. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus didn't answer. Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus answered, you can have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Pilate often said that to the Jews and he knew that it frustrated them when he would say that. Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him and crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then he delivered him to be crucified. And then they took Jesus and led him away. So the beatings, the floggings, the trials, the ins and the outs of Little trials there at the Antonia Fortress. And then in verse 26, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So we first have the mention of the appearance of the cross. The cross that was intended for Barabbas, the murdering rebel that we should have been on was given to Jesus. And most people believe that it was actually the cross beam of the cross called the patibulum that was placed on the victim, weighing about 110 to 120 pounds. The victim would have to carry it 650 yards to the place of his execution. I often think about fencing out on the ranch, not fencing, fencing, but building fence out on the ranch. And we used a lot of railroad ties you know, roughly that weight and picking those heavy things up and dragging them to a hole that I dug and, and uh, not able to completely comprehend having my back scourged and beaten up and loss of blood and weak, not even looking like a man and placing a post like that on my back and, and carrying it any distance whatsoever. But we see on the Via Dolorosa that John lets us know that Jesus packed it a ways, but for some reason, you know, whether he stumbled under the weight or was too weak, uh, Simon was compelled. It says they found Simon 
And they compelled him, or the language speaks of him being seized and pressed into public service. So they compelled him to carry this patibulum. Perhaps it was the whole cross, being more like 500 pounds and dragging it and slamming it down. But I love reading about this Simon man. I love reading about this guy. He was from Cyrene, which was northern Africa, the country of Libya. Had a huge Jewish population that would yearly go up to Passover. And this Simon man was compelled. And Mark chapter 15, verse 21 tells us that uh, we should know who Simon is and we should know who his sons are. Because his sons, Alexander and Rufus, were early church leaders. Romans chapter 16 tells us Rufus was a missionary to Rome. And Acts chapter 11 tells us that there were a group of missionaries that went from Cyrene, Africa, up to Greece and shared the gospel with the Greeks. And I want anyone here want to take a guess of who the head of the missions team was that went to Greece? I would bet it's one of the early church fathers, uh, Simon of Cyrene. Wouldn't it be tremendous if we could follow every person's life after the day of crucifixion and see what happened to them? The soldiers, you know, the women, the mocking ones, the high priests, but the Lord followed them. The Lord knows what happened in their lives. Love reading of these guys. And so he was compelled in verse 27 And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented for him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And even in Jesus's hour of trial, he's still a prophet. And he reminds the people around him the same thing that he cried out uh, from the Olivet Discourse. That because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, Rome will come in about 40 years and ransack and pillage and plunder Jerusalem. To where you would not even be able to tell anyone had ever lived there before. Interesting thing that Christians heard this and knew the Olivet Discourse. And when the Romans came, Christians got out of Dodge. And there's no record of any Christian group dying from the Roman siege there. But sadly, there was a huge number of Jews that wouldn't hear Jesus's prophecies over the, over the nation. And they were all killed. So there's this prophecy that will be fulfilled within 40 years. And these women and their children, you know, they're going to know what he was talking about, but it'll also be fulfilled in the future during the tribulation as you read about that in Revelation. Whole nother story, you can get the Olivet Discourse if you want to find out more about that. We just went through that. Verses 32 through 33, then there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when he'd come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. And so Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Prophesied of from scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. It says that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So he died with these criminals, 
but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Three verses later, it says Jesus was numbered with the sinners there on the cross as he's hung between uh, two thieves. Now, this was probably, you know, at some, in some point trying to be an insult to Jesus that, you know, look, we put you between these sinners, you son of God. But to Jesus, that wasn't an insult. Jesus loved the sinners, came to seek and save the lost and save us from our sins. So if anything, this was another witnessing opportunity for Jesus as he hung there between two thieves. And it says they'd come to Calvary. I love that name. I love that we're Calvary Chapel because I love what happened there at Calvary, also known as Golgotha or the place of the skull. Even today, 2000 years later, Golgotha, an old rock quarry used for executions, still looks like a skull. As you look to the right, you can see the, you know, the eye sockets and the nose. And a hundred years ago, there's a picture there, hundred years old that shows what it looked like a hundred years ago. It just even looked more like a skull. But what I love about this place is its intended use all throughout history. As it's part of Mount Moriah, Golgotha is the highest part of Mount Moriah. And we read of Mount Moriah in the Old Testament. We read about Mount Moriah when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And you remember, he went to sacrifice his one and only son whom he loved. And he laid the wood of the tree upon Isaac's back as Isaac walked up the hill to be a sacrifice. But the Lord said, I will provide myself as the lamb. And there there was a lamb caught in the, the thicket by his horns. A beautiful picture of what will happen on that mountain years from then. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, you got uh, David and how David made a sacrifice on Mount Moriah at the threshing floor of Ornan where the temple would be built. After the plague of the census took place, Second Samuel chapter 24. Then you have that Solomon built the temple on that threshing floor on Mount Moriah. It's a picture of all of these animals being their blood being shed for forgiveness to take place. And finally, the perfect spotless lamb will come that will take away the sins of the world there on Mount Moriah. I love Mount Moriah. We named our little girl, our eight month old Lainey Moriah, the road to the cross or the road to Moriah. You know, and my, my prayer is that's a prophecy over her, that she's a little witness to take people to Jesus. And so as we look at Golgotha, the place of the school, now it's a, a bus station. You know, you can see the hood of a bus right there on the bottom right. But an awesome thing is that uh, this picture is taken from the garden that the tomb is in. In fact, to this day, it's a beautiful garden with a 10,000 gallon cistern on it. And if you were just to turn, I don't know, 45 degrees from where this picture is taken, you'll see the garden tomb where Jesus was taken a Sabbath day journey, a stone's throw away. And he was buried there in the rich man's tomb. Just a beautiful place to go. Now, this crucifixion site was purposely chosen to be outside of the city walls because the law forbid this type of execution within the city walls for sanitary reasons. The crucified body was, Johnson writes, the crucified body was sometimes left to rot on the cross and served as a disgrace, a convincing warning and deterrent to passers-by. A 15th century writer wrote, Just Lipsis, 
He wrote, sometimes the subject was eaten while alive and still on the cross by wild beasts. That was when the Romans would kill their prisoners. That is how these people were treated. And so we read that, you know, as they they took him to the spot, the patibulum, the cross beam of the cross, thrown down on the ground with Jesus, that at that moment they tried to give Jesus sour wine, but when he tasted it, he spit it out and wouldn't drink it. And then we read that there at Calvary, they crucified him. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. Psalm chapter 22 is known as the Psalm of the Cross. Maybe next year for Good Friday, we'll study the Psalm of the Cross in depth. Thousand years before Jesus, 700 years before crucifixion was invented, the writer prophesies of a death coming through the piercing of the hands and the feet. Crucifixion was a practice originated with the Persians, and then it was adapted and passed on to the Carthin- uh, Carthinians and the Phoenicians. But then the Romans took it and perfected it as a method of execution that caused maximal pain and suffering over the longest period of time. Those crucified included slaves, provincials, and the lowest of the low criminal. Roman citizens, except deserting soldiers, Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. It was too severe of of an execution. So they pierced his hands. They pierced his feet. About seven inches long were these nails, like a railroad spike, had a diameter of about a centimeter, driven into the wrist. Studies show that, uh, that the, the nails weren't driven into the hands like so often we think, but back farther on the wrist, you can feel your wrist and feel that there's a hole there that nails could go through and it would support the weight of a body, uh, the body of a man there on the cross. Driven through that part of the wrist, um, no fractures would occur, no bones broken, prophesied of Jesus that he wouldn't break any bones, but then driven through the median nerve. The median nerve caused great shocks of pain that would cause the jaw to lock. I don't know if you guys remember the, the adventurer that was out in Utah rock climbing that had the, the rocks crumble below him and they pinched him in a way that he was basically hanging by his arm for a few days until finally he knew that his arm was um, getting gangrene. And so he took his knife and he cut his arm off and he writes in his book about getting to the nerve section of the arm. And that was excruciating pain, a modern day person writing of this type of pain, excruciating. And so the pain that Jesus went through for us, and as Jesus brought the patibulum there to Golgotha, Standing at the crucifixion site would be these upright poles or posts called stipes. And they stood about seven feet high. You know, we kind of think of, I mean, growing up with Easter and Easter eggs, I used to always color a a scene of the cross on my egg. And I'd draw a beautiful rolling hill. (laughs) Color that in. Three perfect crosses. Oh, cute, you know, cute. But as we look at this rock quarry, it wasn't on the top of the hill where they were crucified. It was at the bottom where a Roman road went by that seven feet is as tall as the post was. So they're just right at your eye level, naked and open. As passerbys go by, they will spit and mock at this person. And so these center posts, these stipes were there. And in the center of the stipes was a crude little seat 
called a sedgile or sedulum. It served as a little support for the victim. And, uh, and then that patibulum was put up onto those stipes as the victim was nailed. After the patibulum was set up onto the stipes, they would nail the feet to the center pole. And there's a, an artifact that's been found. It's in the Jerusalem Museum. I've gotten to see it. But it's an ankle bone from a crucified person with the nail still in it. And it shows that they would nail the person like that sideways to the cross through both feet, um, through their ankles. You know, whether Jesus was crucified like that or not, um, it just gives you an idea of what, what the people would go through. The feet were nailed to the stipes and to allow for this, the knees had to be bent and rotated laterally, being very uncomfortable for a person whose hands had been nailed to the cross. And then finally, after his feet were nailed, they hung the titleist over the victim's head. I say victim, I think of Jesus every time. The titleist was the reason they were being executed, the purpose. And we're going to look at the titleist in just a second. As we look at the physical sufferings of the cross, may it, it, it cause us to hate our sin. May it cause us to understand what our sin did to a man who never sinned, to a man who is God and who created us and loved us. And the Psalm of the cross says, I'm poured out like water. All my energy is gone. All my bones bones are out of joint. Studies show that the stress put on those joints would dislocate um, the shoulders. He goes on to prophesy, my strength is dried up like a dry piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus was dehydrated. You lay me in the dust of death. Suffering from the flogging, Jesus had already lost a lot of blood. And we see his loss of strength here through the psalmist. As he hung there on the cross, he would use shallow breaths because of the position of the rib cage and the the way his arms were positioned. He could only get little tiny breaths in there uh, because of that position. Metherall writes, when the cross was erected upright, there was tremendous strain put on the wrists, arms and shoulders, resulting in discoloration of the shoulder and the elbow joints. Dr. David uh, Terasaka writes that the victim alternated between lifting his body off of that little seat in order to breathe and then slumping down to relieve the pain on his feet. He'd sit on the little sedulum. Eventually, he became exhausted or lapsed into unconsciousness, the victim, so that he could no longer lift his body off the sedulum. In this position, with the respiratory muscles essentially paralyzed, the victim suffocated and died. There's a recent study done by the Discovery Channel on the cross where they took two healthy young men and they just tied them to a cross to the position that Jesus would have been in. One man lasted six minutes on the cross before he was out of breath and out of strength, crying for them to untie him. The other man lasted 15 minutes. Jesus lasted six hours. And as he's there hanging and struggling for a breath, 
Ultimately, his death, uh, the death of those on the cross would come from suffocation. Verse 34 tells us that he prayed out a beautiful prayer. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Is there anything that anybody in your life has done to you that you cannot forgive them compared to what Jesus went through? Can you imagine these soldiers who go through the routine of these executions all the time and so often the victim is cursing at them? How dare you get him down from here? I don't deserve this. Or pleading with them, please get me off of here. Please. And this soldier goes home that night and says, you won't believe what I saw today. Rather than cursing at me or begging at me, this man prayed that I would be forgiven, that I didn't even know what I was doing. Did these guys really not know what they were doing? Well, of course they knew what they were doing, but they didn't understand. They didn't comprehend that they were crucifying the Lord of glory, the creator, the Christ. That's where they were lacking in understanding. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Roman law says that the clothes of the, of the victim would be given to the, the crucifiers or the executioners. They got to have the, the garments. But John's gospel says that right when they were about to divide the garment into four sections, breaking it at the seam usually, they noticed that it was a, a woven garment. It was only one whole garment. And so rather than ripping it, they bet each other for it. They cast lots, fulfilling scripture. Amazing to see how prophecy was fulfilled. Psalm 22 verse 16 says that these dogs have surrounded me, Jesus is thinking. And by dogs, it means Gentiles. And actually Roman soldiers were called dogs. Uh, you know, the congregation of the wicked have encircled me. They pierce all my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. And they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Prophecy fulfilled. Matthew goes on to say that then the soldiers sat down and they just kept watch over him there. Verses 35 and 36. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The mocking that took place here over Jesus. It's interesting here, this statement by the Sanhedrin. Notice they said, he saved him, or excuse me, he saved others. You know, out of the mouths of their mockings comes truth. They knew he really did save people. They knew he really did rise people from the dead. Lazarus, the girl. They knew that the blind man, you know, had mud on his eyes that Jesus put there and that he went and washed it off in the pool of Bethesda and went back and and they examined him that he really could see. And they knew that he was blind before. They knew the man that sat by the pool of Bethesda for his whole life, waiting to get in there in time to get healed, that he was healed by Jesus and could walk around and jump around. They knew it, but their hearts were hard and they rejected Jesus as the Christ. 
Psalm of the cross, I'm a worm, I'm no man. That's an interesting study in and of itself, but I'm a reproach of men. I'm despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew tells us that those that walked by, I, you know, really face to face with Jesus, blasphemed him and wagged their heads. Wag their heads at Jesus. You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come off that cross. But because his death was meant to save others, he didn't save himself. Matthew tells us that even the robbers who were crucified by Jesus shouted out and reviled the same things. And in the midst of this reviling that's taken place, John, we're just kind of going through the order of the gospels of the crucifixion here. John's gospel says that Jesus noticed that his mother and his aunt and two other Marys, one of them, Mary Magdalene, were there by the cross. And he said to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he said to John, he said to Mary, woman, behold your son, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, John took Mary into his home and took care of her just like she was his own mom. But Jesus, they're fulfilling the law, even to the point of taking care of his parents. Mary, probably a widow this, by this point, financially unable to take care of herself. Verse 38, then an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. This is the titleist here. Common thing to place the reason for the execution above the person's head hanging on the cross. John's gospel tells us that Pilate was the one who wrote this with his own hand. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And then when the Jews read it, they go, no, 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 don't put that. But he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And that went above Jesus's head there. And it's interesting that that was written and put there because then we have the criminals discourse here in verse 39. Then one of the criminals uh, who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing that you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into our kingdom. Something clicked in this one criminal's mind where he went from mocking and shouting to having an understanding of who Jesus was. You know, watching Jesus's actions as people mocked him and spit on him. And yet Jesus was saying, forgive them. He was taking care of his mom even while he was on the cross. You know, he he was prophesying over the women and this criminal, no doubt, looked above his head and saw his crime of treason against Rome or whatever it might have been. Robbery, you know, thievery, obviously says thievery. And he looks over at that other guys and thievery and he looks at Jesus's and he says, king of the Jews, what kind of a crime is that? And something in him, no doubt the Holy Spirit moving caused him to repent, caused him to stand up and fight for Jesus there. Remember me when you go into my kingdom and Jesus gives this promise. He says, assuredly, I say to you, 
Today, you might underline that, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Man, this is a beautiful thing, you know. Here we have a deathbed confession. You'll see many of those in the scripture, you know. The Lord doesn't recommend waiting till your deathbed to confess your love for Jesus. But how encouraging it is, those of us that have family members that are rejecting Christ, that keep praying for them. Maybe right now they're at their deathbed and they're hating Jesus. I will not bow the knee to Jesus. This guy was moments away from death when it dawned on him. And he surrendered to Jesus and the promise was given. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, in heaven. And the reason I have you underlined today is because the immediacy of the here and now is stressed with Jesus all throughout scripture. Hebrews chapter three and four. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Today, today, today. You know, when Lazarus died, his sister Mary was weeping, you know, kind of lashed out at Jesus a little bit for taking so long to get there. And Jesus says, Mary, don't you know, he, he's going to rise again. And she goes, I know he'll rise again on that last day on that dirt. When the resurrection happens, I know that I know it'll happen someday. And Jesus is telling us, Hey, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Don't worry from death. If you're in Christ, you'll be with Christ. Notice here on the cross, there's no method of salvation here. There's no special altar call that takes place. You want to go to my kingdom? Okay, raise your hand and pray the sinner's prayer with me. Okay, are you ready? Do you have your eyes closed? You better have, I see a peeking. Okay, you know, or, hey, let me get a crowbar. I'll pry ourselves off of here. I'll go baptize you so you can get saved. No, wasn't necessary. Okay. Hey, hold on. We'll get the worship leader up here. He'll play a nice little emotional song uh, and then you can get saved. Okay. No, no method there. Man, this guy just believed in Jesus and he was saved. He believed in Jesus. He confessed with his mouth right there on the cross that Jesus was the, was the Christ. And he was saved and he had the assurance of his salvation from Jesus. Verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. So for three hours from noon to three in the afternoon, the land was dark and we're talking dark. Interesting that secular accounts from this time say, say that there was a, a, a three hour period or, or an area of darkness from all parts of the world there. Josephus says that the ninth hour was the time when the Jews offered the daily evening sacrifice. And interesting that that sacrifice was being made. It wasn't some sort of natural phenomenon like a solar eclipse because Passover occurred during a full moon and the eclipses take place during a new moon. It was something spiritual that was taking place uh, that, that only can be led to the Lord turning his face, displaying his displeasure against our sin. The land resulted in darkness and the veil of the temple was torn in two. That's a beautiful thing. Before, you couldn't go past the veil into the Holy of Holies where the glory of God was at the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest can go in there and only once a year. Don't even think about it. But when Jesus died, that veil was ripped and a way was made in to spend time with Jesus. Anytime we want, anywhere we are, 
at church, during, you know, corporate worship and corporate prayer, at home, in your bed, cleaning toilets at your janitorial position or changing tires or whatever it is, you can be in the presence of the Lord enjoying him. And I love Romans chapter five, that we have access and can stand in God's presence. Ephesians says a few different times that we have access by the spirit and confidence as we stand before him. Mark's gospel says that then Jesus cried out. It says uh, at the ninth hour at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those, when they stood by, heard that. They said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And they said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus utters the opening words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out in the immense pain of divine abandonment as he's made a substitute for our sin. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's what our sin does. Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, your eyes are pure, pure eyes. You can't behold evil. You can't even look on wickedness. And I heard one pastor say yesterday, and I had to amen him that this verse is becoming my favorite verse. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. And you should know it by now for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. What was happening during that hour of darkness? What was happening when Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening was God was turning his face from his one and only son, whom he loved, whom he was pleased with. And he was allowing the wrath to be poured out there on the cross. In verse 46, then when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he said, father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The other gospels make it seem like there were two cries, that there was kind of a yelp, there was a shout before he said, It is finished. The, you know, it is finished. The propitiation has been made. And most men, by this point, they're suffocated, they're no energy. But Jesus, in his perseverance, in his understanding of what he's gone through, pushes himself up for one more breath and cries out with all the pressure on his lungs and all the pressure on his body, all the pressure on his spirit, cries out. No doubt that cry shook the world as he cried out, it is finished. Again, to be a Roman soldier in that day who was just used to the ritual of, you know, you crucify him, they cry out in pain, but by six hours, man, they are, they are gone. And honey, today this guy shouted this shout. It was an incredible shout. And Matthew tells us what happened in the moment of his death. It says, Jesus cried out again with this loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two during that shout. The earth quaked and the rocks split and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those that were with them 
who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. This was God that we just killed. John's gospel tells us that, you know, Jesus knew that it had all been accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I thirst and a vessel of sour wine was brought. They filled a sponge. They gave it to him, put it to his mouth. He received the sour wine, just a little bit of something to wet his whistle so he could shout really well. And he yelled, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Because it was the preparation day of the Passover, they couldn't allow Jesus to stay on the cross there. So they went to take him down. And so they hurried up the, let's get it over with guys. And they would go break the victim's legs so that they couldn't press themselves up for breaths anymore. And they broke the other two guys' legs. And then coming to Jesus, they noticed it seems that he's already dead. So they took the spear, thrust it into his side. And what came out? Blood and water. And we talked about during the resurrection study, that's evidence of the complete collapse of the heart cavity or his heart exploded and blood and water came out. And so they didn't break his bones. And it says that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierce. And we'll have the worship team come on up. And as we have the team come up, I just want to read just a, a song that we all know, but just couldn't get it out of my head as I was going to sleep last night and this morning. Maybe just close your eyes and put your things aside right now. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no powers, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.